0: Hello and welcome to this month's Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. We're delighted to have us in your ears again to listen to some more evidence-based paediatrics and child health. As you'll probably all know by now, this is the section of the archives where we talk about evidence-based medicine, questions that have arisen in clinical practice that have caused the practitioners to go away and search for the best evidence to answer that uncertainty. They've appraised it, they've weighed its strengths and its weaknesses, and then they've brought it together in a synthetic whole, like a gorgeous confection of evidence and clinical delight. And with that, they've gone onwards to come up with a clinical bottom line, what it is that we can do with the information we have, the best evidence available, rather than necessarily the best evidence that you can get. We always start with something wondering about the practice of EBM as well, though. And this time we're wondering a little bit about the evenness of playing fields. It would be nice to have clinical trials for every decision in medicine. It would be lovely to have a rolling study of um, managing the baby with wee infections, akin to the recovery trial for COVID, where we asked important questions about diagnosis, investigation, treatment, follow-up, prognosis. It would let us know with a fair degree of certainty which of those routes overall was best and even where the differences were slim and maybe patient preference was really important. In time, we could then further risk stratify to understand where those overalls might be right or, or might be wrong for certain sorts of people. But we've not got that in most places in paediatrics. Instead, we have a hotchpotch of trials and slivers of observational study and we have to appraise them and consider them carefully. Trials might answer a question that we don't really want to ask. And observational studies always contain the unspoken concerns of the treating team that nudged their arms into making one choice over another. And if we reject that evidence, then we're left making decisions with our own memories and the clouded collective traditions of our predecessors. It's this balancing act that we have to keep remembering when we undertake to find the best evidence available to answer our clinical questions. Unless the current management is based on a high quality randomised trial, possibly one of a series that's developed each of the steps on the way, and to be honest you have a better chance of that happening in paediatric haematology oncology or in neonates than anywhere else, then it's churlish to demand only that sort of study movers. The best evidence might still be proven wrong in time, but it's usually better than no evidence and guesswork. Yeah, the field is uneven between the subspecialities, between the questions within specialities. Evidence-based medicine seeks the best available evidence, and then we can even things up as much as we can. Now this month is a little bit different in that we've got an interview following this summary of one of the papers that addresses the other one. Both of them are actually about urine retract infections and the first one is asking the question, is a lumbar puncture necessary investigation in a two-month-old infant with a probable UTI? you've got a fairly common situation where a two month old comes in with a short history of fever non specifically unwell with urine microscopy revealing organisms and white cells and a full blood count shows a moderately raised blood count of about 16 the guidelines the nice ones that are currently in practice suggest that a lumbar puncture is performed as part of the assessment but to be honest you're questioning whether this is really necessary or not And so the team went away from this and they came up with a clinical question. In a child of one to three months of fever, positive urine microscopy, no features of meningitis. What's the likelihood of diagnosing meningitis following a lumbar puncture? The team were Jennifer Jamieson and Thomas Williams of the Royal Hospital for Children and Young People up in Edinburgh in Scotland. We take uh, Alchimedia submissions from everywhere in the world. What did they find? Well, they went away and they searched through PubMed and Cochrane, using a sort of a paediatric and UTI filter, looking for meningitis rather than lumbar puncture, which sort of makes sense. And seven separate articles were relevant. There were a couple of systematic reviews that tried to pull everything together in slightly different ways, showing in the same sort of age range what was there. They were systematic reviews largely of observational studies, as you'd expect. No one is going to randomise a child to have a UTI or have meningitis. And they found that it was a low proportion, pooled analysis being one quarter of one percent, with a variability between none in many cases, up to two percent in some small studies. When you took into the low risk versus high risk sort of clinical appearance in those that looked low risk with the clinical appearance, with low markers of inflammation or sepsis, there were no missed cases of meningitis. But when we're getting into the subcutting down of these sorts of things, we're getting down to the smaller numbers that we're a little bit uncertain about. Looking at those sorts of markers that they're talking about, the things that have been shown are procalcitonin, uh, CRP, clinical features, all those sorts of things to look to see, can we really separate things out? Broadly speaking, whatever you're using to define somebody as being well looking or low risk, you're getting no, roughly no or under, certainly under 1% level of meningitis. The overall proportion remains low, And within that, those where the inflammatory markers are very low are really very rare, to the point where no real data are available to suggest that you will miss meningitis. Putting all of this together, even if you don't have access to procalcitonin you could say that in the over one month old if you've got a strong evidence of urine infection with say positive urine microscopy rather than just a dipstick they appear clinically well you've got what you've got by the way of the lab to having show no high features of inflammation and no clinical features of meningitis then you could safely avoid a lumbar puncture in this setting as part of the Archimedes podcast this month, we've managed to persuade Dan Cave, who's an ST1 in paediatrics in the Yorkshire and Humber region, to come along and talk about his Archimedes. Now, this Archimedes is all about the treatment with antibiotics of urinary tract infections in little ones, sort of two to three months old. And as an oncologist, I don't have a lot of stay for that. But I do remember that when I was back doing paediatrics and didn't just do oncology, um, that we always used to treat little ones with IV antibiotics. Now, this wasn't quite in the days where we had penicillin and nothing else. I'm, I'm slightly younger than that. Um, that was what we always did and and then this question came along and it really sort of made me think if we were right and whether it was the right thing um so so dan um yeah can you can you tell us about your archimedes please
1: sure and and thanks very much for having me on on the podcast um so the the the, it sort of started uh based on a patient i'd seen um and yeah as you'll know the structure of archimedes starts with a case scenario so um, it was a ten-week-old baby boy who came in overnight with about twelve hours of poor feeding, non-specific symptoms, and came to A&E and and essentially had a um, was observed for a while, had um, breastfed really well actually um, with us, and then uh, a, a incidental urine sample was taken due to the non-specific symptoms and the young age, and it had. Of a significant amount of white cells in it um, on our initial microscopy from the lab. So we repeated that sample um, and it's got the same result. Um, The baby remained completely well, although, when when talking to seniors and looking at our local and national guidance, um, we were then committed to uh, blood tests, cannula, IV antibiotics and an admission. So this kind of felt odd to me. It doesn't, it doesn't feel nice to have to justify the, the disruption to the family, the painful procedures. Um, and so I had a look at the evidence around whether oral antibiotics could have been used in this situation, whether we could have sent the patient home. And first place is obviously look, to look at the guidelines. I found out that the relevant NICE guidelines are the, the f- uh, fever in under fives guideline, which which you know says between one to three months of age, if they look unwell, then you you should use IV antibiotics. Doesn't doesn't really state if the the child is afebrile, and then you can look at the UTI in children guideline, which um, seems to say the baby needs a specialist review under three months and IV antibiotics. Um, so so there's a bit of a grey area with well looking infants. There's been a recent European consensus statement that actually has clarified it a bit more and said if they're only over, over 60 days, then, then actually oral antibiotics can be used in well infants um, as long as they're not vomiting and are able to tolerate the, the you know, oral medication. Um, and then U.S. and Canadian guidelines, interestingly, are already um, using oral antibiotics in this age group, even for febrile babies. I conducted a search. Uh, with Medline, Embase, um, PubMed, uh, the usual places, using some keyword searches in a sort of PICO type format, and found sort of 269 articles that were relevant, um, but excluded, um, and and really searched through just to find um, ones relevant to this age group, this two to three month uh, group of babies with urinary tract infections, uh, who were treated with initial oral antibiotics. So not ones that had, had IV for a bit and then oral. And, uh, so, so there were actually three randomized trials that included babies of this age group. Um, and, and one then Cochrane review, which was also in, in the paper. Um, and so these, these all use varying amounts of, uh, young infants, um, ranging from sort of uh, 50% under six months to, You know, uh, there was one that was only 12% of babies under three months. Um, And they used different oral agents, but most of them were um, either carmoxiclab or some sort of third-generation cephalosporin. Um, uh, But they used similar outcomes. So the main outcomes were sort of short and long-term, time to resolution of the fever or recurrence of the UTI after the end of the course. Um, And then the long-terms were usually using... Uh, DMSA or uh, something to detect sort of long-term renal scarring, um, usually done at six months or twelve months, um, and and all of those three randomised trials showed no difference between infants treated with um, oral or, or anti- IV antibiotics, which was the key thing that I was interested in. Um, so some of them, there were slight other very variations in their protocol. These were all febrile babies with upper UTIs or pyelonephritis, so these were all slightly higher risk than the population that I was interested in, well-appearing infants, so we could probably safely assume that if there's no difference for these sicker babies, there might be even even less difference um, for, for well babies. This was a sort of promising finding that maybe we could treat these as outpatients.
0: It's interesting to to learn the, um that that three trials in this area because often the, the the common straightforward everyday stuff just doesn't get trials done. So it's really interesting to see that, that people have a, addressed this issue properly.
1: The first one was 1999, um, and the most most recent one was um, sort of 2007. So they um... it's been around a while then. This data. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, it's it's based on your interpretation of these studies. You know, the they're the fairly big numbers. Um, 1999 was three hundred and six children uh, with about half under six months. Um, but it's, it's it's whether the the small numbers of infants can be extrapolated to to change practice. And I think there's just not that um, maybe ideal study that people are looking for. Yeah, and and maybe it's taken it's taken a
0: slow creep downwards in age for, mm-hmm. for finally the Canadian and, and US guidance to, mm-hmm. um, to take the leap into where the evidence was probably lying. Um, and I, I think you explained really nicely there the idea that um, the, that if you have a patient in front of you that is even less risky than the patients in the trial, uh, that uncertainty grows even smaller as you're weighing the risks and balances um, which I think is a really key point about doing evidence-based medicine actually yeah. on the coal front is is mm. taking all of that into account. It's not just looking at the p-values or, or lack of mm. them if you' if you're looking at a lack of difference. That's brilliant. Thank you very very much for joining us. I really appreciate you giving up your time Dan. So that's it for this month. What have we got in front of us? Well, we've got many more months of evidence-based medicine, paediatrics and child health spanning the age range from pre-born premature neonates right the way up to teenagers and young adults. We'll have questions of diagnosis, prognosis, treatment, treatment and more treatment. We'll be thinking about surgical and medical interventions and we'll be looking at trials, observational studies and complex analyses of different ways. Can you get involved with this? Absolutely you can. Follow the instructions to authors on the website, register your question in advance, get what is generally thought of as helpful editorial advice pushing you on the way. And you too could maybe be interviewed for one of these or certainly have your grandma be able to listen to your paper being talked about in the Archimedes podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening.